to them. Let's begin our worship by singing to God's praise in Psalm number 49. And it's uh, at the beginning of the song, it's page 274. Now this is a song about people living in this world as if they're going to be here forever and not thinking that death is going to come. It's, it's verse 15, the psalmist says, But from hell's hand God will me free, for he shall me receive. And that's the great difference for people in this world. If we move on without having our sins dealt with, we end up in the lostness of the lost. But we don't need to be there. We can have God save us. And I want us to remember the verse 15 as we sing. We're going to sing right through this song uh, today. At the beginning then, hear this all people and give ear all in the world that dwell, both low and high, both rich and poor, my mouth shall wisdom tell. My heart shall knowledge meditate, I will incline my ear to parables, and on the harp my sayings dark declare. We'll sing verses 1 to 6 of Psalm 49. Hear this, all people, and give ear.
Now let's join together in prayer. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we pray that as we go along life's journey we would be realistic and we would acknowledge that our days and our years in this world are numbered and we must move on. We realize that we were born in sin and shapen in iniquity and that the wages of sin is death. But we thank you that Jesus came into this world to conquer death for us. We pray that we would trust in him each and every day of life's journey. We thank you for the beauty of this day, this one day in seven that you have set aside. Not just for public worship, but for private worship as well. May we use this day to ponder you, to meditate upon you to pour out our souls before you and to be edified by you. We come here this day as needy creatures. We pray for those who are heavy-hearted because they are mourning the loss of loved ones. We pray for others who are heavy-hearted for various other reasons. Some of things that are heavy on their hearts that they have not told another living soul. But uh, we can tell you everything. And we pray that we would remember that. We give thanks this day for every single life here, born and unborn. We thank you for little ones in our midst. And we would give thanks at this time for the decision that has come out of the Supreme Court in America regarding the issue of abortion. May we remember that the psalmist in your word said, My mother also me conceived in guiltiness and sin. And the me is there from the moment of conception, it would appear. May we remember that. The song we are singing through today is a song about those who put themselves before God. May we realize that that is utter folly. May we bow before you. May we acknowledge who you are. And may we cry out to you in our need to be guided and shown your ways. Each and every day we realize that as we gather here the enemy of our souls does not like it but we pray that you would help us as he comes at us from every angle seeking to throw a spanner in the works but we need to be here we need this day, we need these people, we need your book, we need your presence. And so we pray that you would come in with us, that you would bless us, and that you would do us good. Remember all the school teachers and the pupils as they break for summer holidays. Please watch over them and keep them in safety, wherever they might go. We pray, O oh Lord, that uh, you would remember each and every one of us. We thank you for family bonds and 
Our earnest prayer is that we would all be found in Christ. May we all trust in you. And may we all have your hand of guidance and protection with us right throughout life's journey. Remember those of our number who are unwell and who are worried about these things. We pray that they would find themselves coming further under the shadow of your wing. Bless us, we pray then. And all we ask is in Christ's name. Amen. Now a wee story for the young people. Um, a good number of us were at the barbecue yesterday and as I said earlier on it was a very, very good event. And I'm not going to mention any names but there was a, there was a wee three-year-old boy amongst the children at the, at the, at the barbecue yesterday. And, um, and on a couple of occasions I went off to, to play with them. And one of the things I was doing was uh, taking him by his arms and just going round and round and round until I was dizzy and he was dizzy and, and it was all great fun. And, and, and the others were joining in as well. But this wee three-year-old kept coming back saying, do it again, do it again. And so I would do it again. But on this particular occasion, I could tell there's something not right. And I said, to, I said to him, are you okay? And there was a bit of silence. And I could see his little mind working away. And then he said this to me, it's ouchie. <laughs> I laughed, I didn't laugh out loud, but I laughed and laughed. I knew exactly what he was talking about. Because obviously I was holding him in a way that was making it sore for him. And so uh, when I said to him, what, what's, are you okay? Out he came, it's ouchie. Now, do you, know that, do you know what that reminds me of? I'd never ever heard that word, word before, uh, ouchie, but, uh, but, uh, but I knew what he was talking about. Do you know prayer is when we talk to God? And you know, we don't actually need words when we talk to God, because God knows it. Scripture talks about groaning to God. And I think Scripture even goes further and it talks about measuring tears in our bottle. What's that telling us? I think it's telling us this about God. Yes, we speak through things with God if we can but sometimes it gets so ouchy that we just groan and sometimes it gets so ouchy we just cry but God knows it all and I want us I want us to remember that we are here this day to worship an astonishing God a God we can, can turn to no matter what it is that's problematic for us in life's journey. Remember that word in your prayers, ouchie. It's a new one for me.
Let's continue to sing in the same song. It's Psalm 49 and it's at verse 7. Yet none of these his brother can redeem by any way, nor can he unto God for him sufficient ransom pay. Their soul's redemption precious is, and it can never be that still he should forever live and not corruption see. We'll sing verses 7 to 11 of Psalm 49, yet none of these his brother can redeem by any way. God's word as we find it in the book of Malachi and chapter 3. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament and we'll read at the beginning of chapter 3. Behold, and remember Malachi is writing, Malachi is around about 440 to 400 BC. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. 
And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. (coughs) Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? (coughs) Will man rob God? (coughs) Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear says the Lord of hosts then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight says the Lord of hosts your words have been hard against me says the Lord But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking us in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. 
The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Amen and may God bless to us that reading from his word. Let's join together again in prayer. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we thank you that in the passage of scripture that we have just read, that you tell us that you do not change. The psalmist says, from all change and mutation three. And that's why we are here this day. And that's why we have not been consumed. Because we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed so immensely. But your call to the people long ago was return unto me and I will return unto you. We thank you that there is mercy in the Lord. The psalmist says that his mercy reaches the heavens. We thank you that that's the kind of mercy that is there. Because that's the kind of mercy we need. And we pray that we would remind ourselves of that this day. We pray that we would listen to your word as you tell us again and again. That you are gracious. That you are long-suffering. And that for those who trust in you. Goodness and mercy shall follow them all the days of their life. So we pray that as we explore something afresh this day of your word, that you would come in with us and that you would do us good. Wherever your church is gathered across the globe this day, we pray that you would be in the midst to bless. All we ask is in Christ's name. Amen. Now let's continue in the same song, Psalm 49 at verse 12. But yet in honour shall not man abide continually, but passing hence may be compared unto the beasts that die. Thus brutish folly plainly is, their wisdom and their way, yet their posterity approve what they do fondly say. We'll sing verses 12 to 15 of Psalm 49, but yet in honour shall not man abide continually.
Now let's turn to the Gospel according to St. Luke and at chapter 7 and we'll read at verse 27. Luke 7 and at verse 27. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Now let's, by God's enabling, seek to explore something of this area of Scripture. We're carrying on with our series on John the Baptist uh, today. And you'll remember that last week we explored the questions that were raised concerning uh, John the Baptist. What did you go into the sea? What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. John wasn't a reed shaken by the wind. Blowing this way, that way, and the next. A man dressed in soft clothing. Someone in a king's court who was a yes man doing the king's bidding. That's not what John the Baptist is about. A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. And remember what a prophet was. A prophet was somebody who took the message God gave him and passed it on to others. That was what John the Baptist was about. Now we're not going to cover it all in today's sermon, but what I want us to look at in particular today is this verse concerning John the Baptist. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And that's why we read the passage in Malachi, because the prophet Malachi spoke very clearly not only about Jesus coming into this world but he spoke very clearly about John the Baptist coming into this world as well and what this sermon today is going to be about is it's going to be about the problem that existed in Malachi's day then we're going to look at the prospect because Malachi draws our attention to the fact that the Lord is coming to his temple. In other words, Jesus is coming. But we are also going to look at what I will call the pre-warning, because that was the function of John the Baptist. He was there to tell the people, he's just about to come, so get ready for him coming. So it's the problem, the prospect, and the pre-warning. Well, what was the problem in Malachi's day? Well, there were several of them. The priesthood was a problem. It was just so corrupt. The worship was a problem. They just couldn't care less about their uh, worship. Marriage was a problem. The institute of marriage was being ignored. Social justice was not being adhered to, and Malachi also mentions tithing. Let me say a little bit about these things briefly, because there's quite a number of them. But in chapter 1 of Malachi, at verse 6, this is what we read, and this is the problem with the priesthood. In other words, we would say it's the problem with the church leadership. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, 
Where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. To you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? It's the arrogance of this. Here they are. They are God's priestly people. And God is telling them, you've no respect for me. You don't honor me. And they turn around and they say, how have we despised your name? In other words, what are you talking about? We're innocent people. We know what we're about. And here's what God says. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifices, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? You see what's going on here with, with the priesthood. And you know, the priests were there to be teaching the people. And when we come on to look at the problems in the worship, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't be dividing the priesthood and the worship because the worship was a cum less attitude because of the church leadership. Here's here's what's said to the priests later on in chapter 2. And now, O priests, this command is for you. You know, just like John the Baptist... When John the Baptist was speaking to Herod and Herodias, he didn't beat about the bush, even if they were the king and the, and, and, and the king's wife. Jesus, the eternal God, never, they never, he never beats about the bush. And if the priests, if the church leadership are needing spoken to, they will be spoken to. And now, O oh priests. This command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it eh, to, to heart. This is what happens when the church leadership chooses to do its own thing and forgets what God has revealed previously. We read in that chapter about things that had been given, delivered to Moses at Mount Horeb. He had given them guidance as to how they should conduct themselves. They turned their back on it. They did their own thing. And if anybody as we go through these things thinks in terms of well there's a parallel to what's going on in the world and in the church today with what's going on in Malachi's day then I wouldn't argue with you. I wouldn't argue with you. The worship in general in chapter 1 and at verse 10 listen to this. And remember this is the worship that's going on in God's chosen place of worship. This is what God is saying. Oh that there were among you. Oh that there were one among you who would shut the doors. 
that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Now what was happening was, the people would come, and in those days sacrifices were offered up to God, the people would come and the priests would engage in the offering up of the sacrifices. But let's remember this. If this God has given us everything, this God deserves a bit of respect and reverence in return from us. If we go back to the difference between the worship that Abel offered up to God and the worship that Cain offered up to God. What Abel offered up to God, we read of this. He gave of the fat of his flocks. In other words, Abel listened to what God had to say. Abel was aware of what God had done for him. And God got the best that Abel could give him. We do not read that Cain gave of the best of his crops. It looks as if one is listening to God and the other is listening to himself. That's why one is worship is acceptable to God and the other worship is not. And I think we have to remind ourselves of this. When Noah came out of that ark, he engaged in the offering up of sacrifices to God. And God was well pleased with it. I find that an astonishing revelation that a human being can move the heart of the eternal God and can delight the heart of the eternal God. Of course it works the opposite way as well. A human being can disappoint the heart of the eternal God. And right now in Israel, 400 years before Jesus is in the world, Malachi is bringing God's word to a people that are disappointing the heart of of God. But we go to chapter 2 and at verse 13 and here's the undermining of the institution of marriage. Now, the word marriage has been degraded in recent times simply because of this whole idea of gay marriage. When I'm using the word marriage here, I want to go back to the biblical meaning of the word marriage. The lifelong union between a man and a woman. That's the meaning of marriage uh, that, uh, that I am using. And we do live in the day and age where if we are going to discuss things, we do have to go back to basics and and, and work out how we're using language. L- let me give you an example of how language moves. The word let. If I let you into my house, that means I'm allowing you to come into my house. But if you go back to Shakespearean English, if you go back 400 years, the word let meant to hinder. We know the phrase without let or hindrance. And let and hindrance, they are synonyms. 
So, so there's a word that's done a complete U-turn in its meaning. And so you've got to ask, how is it being used in a given circumstance? The word gay, for example, it used to mean something cheerful, bright, colourful. The word gay nowadays, if it's a gay day, you start thinking of a gay pride march or something like that. And, and the same thing has happened to the word marriage. But I'm going back to the use of the meaning of marriage within a scripture. And here in chapter 2 and at verse uh, 13, listen, listen to this. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the, Lord has wit- because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. What's, what's being said here? This is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning. Now if you saw someone in an act of worship with tears and weeping and groaning, you might think, well that's a very good way to be before this eternal living and true God. We can hoodwink anybody around us and we can hoodwink ourselves. And we are so expert at doing that. But we cannot hoodwink God. We cannot. And this institution of marriage that is so under attack, where you have American billionaires pouring not millions, but billions of US dollars into the tearing down of this institution. I'm thinking of men like George Soros and such like. This institution of marriage is it's God's idea. And when it speaks about uh, a godly offspring, it's speaking about a godly offspring being found within the context of, uh, of, of marriage. Now I know that sometimes marriages do not work out and there, 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 is, there are, as far as I can see, two reasons for divorce in Scripture. One is adultery, and the other is desertion. But, but just because another party might commit adultery, that doesn't mean to say that the marriage has to be dissolved. The, uh, the innocent party might well choose to continue with the marriage and forgive. But uh, these seem to be the two situations where... Divorce is permissible. But um, 
within um, within marriage itself if it's falling apart it's you know we 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 use this phrase it takes two to tangle and uh, sometimes it's very very difficult to work out who's to blame for what but the scriptural view on it is pretty clear that there can be a guilty party and an innocent party and that gives the foundation for proceeding with divorce but this institution of marriage is coming under attack from all angles but the marriage situation of father and mother in a given home and I think this is well documented in our society today is the best environment for the uh, upbringing of, of children it chimes with now it's not always possible for various reasons it's not always possible but uh, it chimes with what is being said here but the great difficulty back then was that marriage was just so watered down and God's having not having it he is challenging them on that issue but there's also this lack of social justice in chapter 3 and at verse 5 then I will draw near to you for judgment I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers against the adulterers against those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired workers and their wages the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me says the Lord of hosts there were those who were not paying their workers what they should have been paying them God notices it there were those who were not attending to the needs of the fatherless God notices it there were those who were just not paying attention to the needs of widows and God notices it and he's challenging them and then this final thing we want to look at is in chapter 3 and at verse 8 will man rob God yet you are robbing me but you say how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions you see this is the way with God in Old Testament times God blessed these people and as a testing of their faith God said to them now I want you to give back a tenth of all I give you and they weren't bothering with it now in New Testament times as far as I can see the minimum we should be giving to God is a tenth of what God has given to us and if God has prospered us more then it can be more but there's this crucial thing about our interaction with God on this subject God loves a cheerful giver if we are of the mind and disposition I grudge every penny I give to God in this cause then my advice would be hold on to what you've got because God loves a cheerful giver and I think the opposite of that is God doesn't love a begrudging giver but here's the astonishing thing why would we be begrudging with God he's given us everything he's given us the health and strength that enables most of us at any rate to work and to have an income and 
and to consider now, now, what, now what do we do with them do, do we give it to the church or what do we my advice on that matter is you do your own thinking and you make up your own mind because there are many good causes that honour the name of God in this world and um, I think everybody should just work these things out prayerfully between themselves and God in their, in their, in, 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 in their own minds but whatever we do we should remember we have everything given to us by God everything he tests our faith by asking for at least a tithe in New Testament times eh, back to him does he need it the cattle on a thousand hills are his it's all his anyway but he does test our faith and so in these Old Testament times there were many problems and God is through Malachi is challenging eh, the people but in the midst of all this problem there is eh, a prospect and the prospect is this behold and that's calling our attention calling the attention of the people away back then I send my messenger I send my messenger and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and 400 years later the Lord did come to his eh, temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight behold he is coming says the Lord of hosts but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears listen to chapter 4 for behold pay attention to this behold the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be uh, stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. I think that's a situation where words are not being diluted. That is a, that is a clear indication that a day is coming when this Lord will sit in judgment not only of those who were around in Malachi's day but alas will sit in judgment of the whole of the human race of the whole of the human uh, race serious problem in the land of Israel but the prospect is this the Lord is coming to this world but I'm going to move on to my third point and speak a little bit about the pre-warning that is, uh, is given because this is the mercy of God manifesting itself God will send before the Lord comes to his temple John the Baptist to pre-warn it's kind of like this it's a pleading of God to the people to get ready for the coming of the Lord to his uh, his temple behold 
I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now there were those around the times of Jesus who wondered if Jesus was indeed the literal Elijah. That's the way some uh, commentators interpreted uh, the Old Testament prediction that Elijah would come back to this world. That was wrong. That was wrong. But there were others who said, are you Elijah or are you the prophet? They expected a prophet to come with the same kind of spirit um, and challenge of, uh, of Elijah. But we do know that the Lord Jesus Christ himself said that the fulfillment of that prophecy in Malachi was fulfilled in terms of John the Baptist himself. It's a reminder to us of this. We can so easily feed our interpretation into the word of God and get it so wrong. But Christ himself makes it very, very clear in the Gospels that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Elijah. This particular uh, passage. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord uh, comes. Now what I want us to remind ourselves of is this, because we could so easily just say, that was for 2,400 years ago. This has nothing to do with us. Or even 2,000 years ago. This has nothing at all to do with us. Let's remember this though. When Jesus Christ comes to this world for the first time. When the Lord, as it were, comes to his temple for the first time. It's inextricably bound up with him coming to this world for a second time. You will remember that after the crucifixion of Jesus, he's entombed and on the third day he rises again. Forty days later he goes to Bethany and he rises up into the air and he disappears into the clouds. And the angels speak to his disciples and they say to him, he will come again to this world in the same way that he left it. Jesus of Nazareth has gone. The Lord has gone to his heavenly temple, so to speak. But he's coming back. The second coming of Jesus has not yet occurred. When will it be? Well, we just don't know. We just don't know. As far as I can see, Scripture talks about the Jews turning to Jesus as a people. As far as I can tell, that hasn't happened yet. But my point is this. He is, he is coming back. What about this teaching? It's all about pre-Jesus coming this first time. Here we are 2,000 years later. Has it got anything to say to us? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because when Jesus came the first time, do you know what he said? I've not come to judge the world. I've not come to condemn it. I've come to offer the hand of salvation. Will it always be like that? You know, this is, this is where you get perfect equilibrium in Christ between justice and mercy. He holds them both 
in complete and utter balance. And if we reject the free offer of the gospel, if we reject his way of salvation, we will have to pay the price ourselves for our sins. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God because he does not spare where justice has been ravished. The demands of justice will be made. The song we have been singing, the psalm writer says in it, that God has saved him from hell. God is the only one who can save us from hell. But that's the glory of the gospel. That's why we are here this day. We have a God who is merciful. We have a God who challenged them 2,400 years ago, pointed out the problems. We have a God who pointed to them the prospect of a coming Redeemer. But we also have a God who pre-warned them away back then. It's as if God is bending over backwards saying, listen to me, listen to me, get ready for the Redeemer. This is the God who changes not. This is the God who changes not. This is the God who is pre-warning us every time we come under the sound of the gospel. Prepare to meet your God. And may God grant that we would flee to the Saviour so that we are indeed prepared to meet this God. Amen. Let's conclude by singing in the same song, Psalm 49, and at verse 16. Be thou not then afraid, when one enriched thou dost seen, or when the glory of his house advanced is on high, for he shall carry nothing hence, when death his days doth end, nor shall his glory after him into the grave descend. We'll sing to the end of the song, Be thou not then afraid when one enriched thou dost see.
Now may grace, mercy and peace from Father, Son and Holy Spirit rest on and abide with each one, both now and forevermore. Amen.